Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 67 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. We do not have a dedicated co-host in this episode, something to do with me being between a couple of family holidays, the Emic conference earlier this month in Liverpool and just not being quite as organised as I usually am. But we do still have three brilliant interviews lined up for you, including a fascinating captive owner chat with Teresa Severson, Vice President of Insurance and Risk Management at Kite Realty Group in the US, and our quarterly investments update with Chris DL and Roger Jones from Friends of the Podcast, London and Capital. In the second half of the episode, I will also be talking to Jaten Halai, Head of Structured Risk Solutions in the UK at AXA XL, to discuss alternative risk transfer options for cyber coverage. So first, let's get into our captive owner interview with Teresa Severson at Kite Realty. Teresa provides great detail on how she has managed a merger at parent level to reassess and restructure their captive programs, but begins by providing some background on Kite and the recent merger. So Kite Realty Group is a full-service, vertically integrated real estate investment trust, a REIT. Um, We're engaged primarily in ownership and operation, acquisition, development, and redevelopment of high-quality neighborhood, community, uh, and lifestyle open-air shopping centers in select markets in the United States. In October of 2021, Kite Real Estate merged with Retail Properties of America, forming the fifth largest REIT in the country. I had been with RPAI for 13 years prior to the merger, and post-merger was um, fortunate enough to be asked by uh, Kite Realty to remain in the same role that I held at RPAI. Uh, Kite did not have an in-house insurance and risk manager. So I've been with the organization since uh, last October. And it's been great. I feel uh, really unfortunate to be working with an organization that, um, you know, allows me the engagement with the executive suite with regards to not only our insurance structure, but the risk culture within the organization. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to have that engagement uh, with the kind of senior management and particularly as we're going to come on to with, with the captive, I think it's always important that the, the company understands why and that captive's there and, and, and what it's been used for. So can you then uh, tell us what the, the current captive structure is you, you have in place, a bit of the history of it, how long has it been in place for you? Both REITs had separate captives. The RPAI portfolio uh, had a captive based in Vermont. That captive is a reinsured and fully fronted program. It takes on the first $100,000 of all liability claims. On the property side, it only took a million dollars of cat per occurrence and uh, in aggregate. For the all other perils, it took $150,000 of each loss. Uh, Eventually, we increased that to $250,000. For the Kite program, that captive was formed around the same time, 2015, 2016. That was domiciled um, in Tennessee. That program took on 12 million X of 7.5 million for named win. It included some win buy down and then just 50,000 of the all other perils, uh, really the deductible on the standard property program. 
Fascinating. Thanks. It's really good to get that detail. So how has the, the risk profile changed of the organization, if at all, with the merger? And has that changed how you use these these captives? So Kite, prior to the merger, had 83 shopping centers and a total of uh, 12 million square feet. Currently now, we have 185 open-air shopping centers with 32 million square feet. 40% of that portfolio is um, based in Florida and Texas. So for me as a risk manager, my prior program had very little cat. Uh, now the combined program is, you know, 40% of it is in uh, a wind tier or a cat zone. Yeah. So really we're taking a time right now to take a look at the captive programs and how do we best utilize that, especially with the, you know, legacy programs. So what we decided to do is we are going to continue with the Vermont-based captive. We're in the process of closing down the Tennessee uh, captive. Effective 3-1, we moved the exposures that were in the legacy kite uh, captive into the Vermont captive. And then really the goal is 12-1 um, to take a re- look at the rest of the program and combine it there. It just didn't make sense to rush into anything. I didn't want to lose some of the advantages we had from pricing on one portfolio to try to squeeze in another one. I really wanted to be able to have the opportunity to do the modeling, to really evaluate kind of what the new risk appetite would be and to utilize the captives appropriately. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to take your time. I mean, these are complex, uh, whether it's closing down a captive or transferring a captive, redomicing a captive or, or to some extent merging captive, they are complex structures. And, and I think you're right to kind of take your time to assess how best to do that. And it'd be interesting to see how that pans out over the next 12, 24 months. What has been your experience said of the insurance market of the past three years, obviously combined with the merger uh, as well, but have you had to lean on your captive more as kind of uh, the hard insurance market has increased rates? You know, I came from the um, managing the RPAI portfolio. And in that instance, I had the advantage of having my first 50 million underwritten by the, the same carrier, right? So we were able to um, have a, a rate guarantee that really allowed us some stability in um, what we were purchasing in the market. So really, we kind of kept the status quo with regards to what we were putting in the captive. I was really comfortable. I knew how many incidences I was going to have on the general liability what percentage of those would turn into claims and what percentage of that would end up being litigated. So at that point, I was able to really comfortably take 85% of all of our losses under the, into the captive and really feel that I was effectively managing it from a loss perspective, but also from you know a pricing perspective. You know, now that we're combining a portfolio, I'm really going to have to take a look at, you know, the loss experience on the combined portfolio and make sure that, you know, I'm entering some markets that I really wasn't in before. So I want to make sure that I'm comfortable with what we're taking into the captive, you know, doing the work, running kind of the modeling, and then maybe, you know, making the right decisions with regards to what A, the, the market is offering me um, from a pricing and coverage standpoint, and then what makes sense to, uh, to put into my captive. Fantastic. Yeah, it seems like you're pretty well prepared and have your program well as the market did start to turn. You mentioned that obviously the Vermont captive, which will continue, is a, is a reinsurance captive and fully fronted. How do you find kind of using that structure in, 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 as an operating model? Well, what are the particular challenges and, and how do you go about addressing those or what could be done better, do you think? So when I started the captive in 2014, we did it under 
a single reinsurance and, and fronting arrangement with one carrier for both the property and the general liability. You know, and there's definite advantages to that. The administrative costs are lower. You have the flexibility if you have a bad year in one line, it can kind of be offset by the collateral provided for the second line. But what I found the challenge was is that, you know, obviously the property lines don't have the same tail that your liability does. And I was having some difficulty kind of getting some of the property collateral released. So when we moved coverages in 2017 to a different carrier, we decided that even though it was going to have some more administrative costs, we wanted the flexibility that having two separate reinsurances agreements would give us so that I could take advantage of some, you know, if there was a better opportunity from a pricing standpoint uh, for the excess layers above the captive to be able to move that, right? Give myself some flexibility to move around the lines of coverage on, uh, with the fronting arrangement. You know, with the fronting arrangement, the carrier is 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 paying the claims on behalf of the captive, and then we're doing a, a reconciliation. It began quarterly. We changed that to a semi-annual basis. But with the carrier um, being um, based in a foreign country, their quarters close differently than ours. So you always have that little bit of a lag in trying to reconcile them. I found myself spending a lot of time trying to a make sure that they realized that there was two separate collateral accounts for the different lines of coverage, that premium reimbursements and adjustments came from a separate operating account. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what some of those variances were. I was fortunate that my changed brokers and that broker was really uh, willing to kind of step in and really kind of help me vet and scrub through some of those reconciliations, work through it so that when it kind of comes to me, it's kind of presented in a nice, easy package that I can review it, make sense of it, be able to approve it, and then kind of approve the re adjustments in funds and release the funds from our captive back to the carrier. So, you know, there's, there's definitely more work with a fronting and reinsurance arrangement, but it also avoids some challenges that you may have from contractual obligations with regards to what your insurance carrier size and ratings may be. Fantastic. So um, we mentioned at the very top about kind of you've got a, a close relationship with kind of senior management, so they must be kind of aware of the captive's role. How do you ensure you kind of ongoing have thorough assessment and reviews of the value of, of the captive and, and whether it's playing the right role? I presume that's kind of been interrupted a bit with, with the merger and obviously understanding what to do with the second captive. But do, do you make sure that there's always that continued communication of why the captive is there? You know, absolutely. I think it's really important that, first of all, with the role that the captive is playing and that the the C-suite really understands the advantages of it, uh, how we can utilize it, right? The other opportunities that exist by leveraging the captive, but also kind of understanding what the organization's risk appetite is. You know, what would be the point where it would really impact them in a way, a material way, and how to make sure that you're avoiding that. Understanding, especially when we're talking about the amount of cat that we have, what are we willing to take on? What are we able to have? What should we put through the captive? Where would it really have kind of a material impact and making sure that I'm making sure that that never happens, right? So it's it's that kind of ongoing conversation, also making them understand what's going on in the marketplace, right? Um, setting those expectations. You don't ever want them to be surprised with what's happening with the insurance program. So it's it's 
kind of the constant engagement, conversations, creating the awareness, um, making sure that myself as a risk manager know kind of what the goals and what the long-term objectives are for the company. So making sure that I'm setting up the insurance program and really the captive uh, and, and making sure that it's cost-effective and that I'm, I'm plugging any holes. Yeah, no surprises is certainly a, a mantra I hear quite a lot from, from risk managers when they're talking about how they're, they're communicating the value of their insurance program or the captive to kind of treasury or, or finance division. Just lastly, looking forward a little bit, are there other lines of insurance that you think you might consider adding to the captive in the future? Right now at this moment with you know the merging of the two programs, the two captive structures, I'm really kind of just focused in on the, the main coverage lines, the property, the liability, covering some of my uh, cat exposures. But prior to the merger, really had started thinking about you know how I could leverage the captive on the employee benefit side. I found that that was really an interesting way that we could go. Also, when we're talking about some of the redevelopment and some of the construction exposures, you know, is there a way that to effectively leverage the captive with regards to pricing, maybe from a builder's risk perspective? So I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities uh, with the captive. Right now, I'm just kind of in, let's get the the basic program restructured, get things functioning well, and then having the broader conversations about the other opportunities that exist with a captive. Thank you to Teresa for that in-depth discussion on how she has approached a changing risk profile and begun consolidating captive structures. Time for a break, but when we come back, we'll be hearing from our friends at London and Capital for our first investment update of 2022. Paul, R&Q has worked with some very high-profile captive owners over the past 13 years, and the majority of those companies remain owners of sophisticated captives today. I think that demonstrates that transferring legacy liabilities is all part of the natural life cycle of a captive, don't you think? Yes, that's right, Richard. As businesses evolve over time, it makes sense that their insurance needs change, and as a result, the profile of the captive and its role within the group will change as well. We have worked with captives owned by companies such as AstraZeneca, General Electric, Lufthansa and Unilever, who all have sophisticated captive operations and felt the need to restructure or shift their priorities. Offloading a legacy captive or a portfolio of liabilities can often be the most efficient way to repurpose a captive or free up much needed capital for distribution or new lines of business. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or follow the links in the episode show notes. Welcome back to GCP 67 and of course the economic landscape continues to be an increasingly challenging one to navigate with inflation, the cost of living crisis, the shadow of a two-year pandemic, war in Europe and a supply chain crisis all converging to make decisions on investments and taking risk particularly difficult. So with that in mind it was very timely to welcome Chris DL and Roger Jones of London and Capital back onto the pod to provide their analysis on how this will all play out. The initial reaction to interest rate rises and how captives might be thinking about responding. Great, thank you Richard and welcome back. Um, it's been a while since we've had the opportunity to share a bit of a quarterly investment update with uh, the GCP audience so we're, we're looking forward to doing that. I'm joined today by 
our head of equities, Roger Jones. Roger's been uh, working at London Capital for quite some time and now and, and heads up heads up our equity strategies across our captive clients as well as our private clients. So Roger, we're talking on the 16th of June in the afternoon. It's the day after the Fed has approved the biggest rate hike in nearly 30 years since 1994. Over the past six months, we've obviously seen a huge amount of market turmoil across all asset classes as we've fallen from really from the all-time highs that we saw at the end of 2021. Obviously, much of that turmoil has been driven by an uncertain future path of inflation and interest rates. Can you quickly unpack the decision that we saw yesterday from the Fed to uh, the Federal Reserve in the US to raise interest their base interest rates by 0.75%, bringing it up to around the, the 1.5 to 1.75% level. Can you unpack that decision, give us a bit of a sense of what the market response has been? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so I think in terms of looking at why we got to this 75 basis point decision. Now, initially, it was taken off the table that we were going to have the 75 basis point hike. But I think given the data that had been coming through in terms of the inflationary data of the last few days and last few months, really, that built up to this, then the Fed really revised that and they kind of let the market think that they might well do 75 basis points again due to some uh, articles in newspapers, and then we we ultimately got it. And a big part of this is keeping the inflation-fighting credibility with inflation remaining higher, remaining more persistent, these huge supply shocks that we saw from the pandemic. And then from the Ukraine-Russian crisis have really made a lot of commodity prices, input prices um, skyrocket. And clearly from there now, we've got this situation where they really do not want this uh, inflationary spiral to take off. So they're almost at the extent now that they want to prove their inflation-fighting credentials at the expense almost of some growth and to to really dampen the economy down and and get that inflation back towards the 2% target. And equity markets, how have they treated this this sort of latest round of, of tightening? Yesterday, when it actually happened in the first few minutes, equity markets didn't know what to make of it. And then eventually there was a rally in terms of equity markets, the S&P 500 index closing up about 1.5% yesterday. However, as we speak at this point in time, um, in the, the following day, they've already lost that and more again as the, as the market is digesting uh, the impact of the Federal Reserve's actions and what that could ultimately mean for equity investors. And the fear that equity investors have been running with all year has been very much this interest rate fear, inflation concern. But now it's actually moving in towards the growth concern as the Federal Reserve are getting more hawkish and more aggressive in their rate hiking policy, then investors are now concerned that just as the economy is actually naturally slowing a bit, this will tip the economy into recession and have a big impact for corporate earnings, which clearly will not be favourable for equity markets. So if we're seeing that these kind of interest rate rises, uh, you know, obviously designed and implemented uh, with the idea of sort of tackling inflation through destroying demand, stopping growth, slowing the economy, we're likely, obviously, then to be heading, presumably, towards a period of pain in the real economy. What can we expect from equity markets? They are intrinsically future-looking, and, and they often look through issues. How far are they looking through, and do you have a sense of what we might see in the rest of the year, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an excellent point. I think equity markets clearly have that forward-looking nature to them, and they lead the 
economic cycle. So that by the time we actually get to maybe a recessionary environment, a lot of that will already been priced in by equity markets. But you're absolutely right. It is quite a painful experienced in terms of the cost of living crisis that is taking place in the real economy with consumers certainly feeling the pinch from higher gasoline, diesel or petrol prices. Uh, and that really has had a big impact in, in terms of consumer sentiment, which we see at multi-year lows. And really in terms of this is be the first year for many years, for over a decade, where we've actually seen real wage growth be negative. So inflation is running higher than to pay awards uh, in, in terms of offsetting that inflation. So the expectation clearly is that the consumer will slow down um, and that the real world economy will slow quite uh, noticeably on the back of this. Uh, and that's clearly going to have an impact on equity markets and, and corporate earnings. However, I think the very important points to be made here are clearly we're coming from a fairly good starting point. We have a lot of excess savings that have been built up through the pandemic, which is cushioning some of these price and increases that we're seeing across a variety of goods and services, but also labor markets uh, and job markets continue to be very tight. And, and actually that is very helpful in, in reassuring the consumer that clearly we're not in this, what they call a, a deep recession or a balance sheet recession, you might hear it referred to, where clearly there is a lot more pain to be felt, but we're maybe in a sh more shallow recessionary environment coming uh, a dip in growth, if you like, before this inflation works its way through from the, the natural aspects of demand destruction uh, and also from the monetary policy actions as well. So it's clearly going to be a tough time for, um, and it has been a tough time for equity markets. Uh, and in the, going, the real economy now, it will be a tough time for the next few months, undoubtedly, that maybe even the, the rest of the year. But it's maybe something that will not persist indefinitely. Bringing this back to captives and making it making it relevant specifically for, for captives who are now equity investors over the last 10 years, in particular, we've seen captives taking more investment risk. We've seen captives building in higher uh, allocations to equities into their investment portfolios, largely because bond yields have been so low and offered so little return. Captives with any kind of equity allocation today will have experienced pain, as you referred to, in the first six months of this year. I guess it's worth noting that returns haven't been e evenly distributed. So we've seen growth stocks, particularly those who are still unprofitable and burning through cash, arguably being hit the hardest with stocks like Netflix, for example, down more than 75% from its 2021 peak. The best performers for the year have also been seen in very cyclical, sensitive, cyclically sensitive sectors. As you referred to, you know, we've, we've had these supply shocks and particularly commodity squeezes where oil, the oil price has gone up or, or industrial metal prices have peaked sharply in response to, uh, to other external pressures like the Ukraine-Russia war. Th this kind of volatility, both on the upside and on the downside in these kind of sectors, has really been stomach-turning. If captives and their boards are looking forward and looking ahead, and thinking about their equity allocation, how do you think they should be thinking about their equity exposure if they value their sleep at night, if they want to be confident that, that actually the allocation they've got in equities isn't, isn't going to exhibit perhaps the kind of volatility that we've seen in the past six months? looking ahead unfortunately that's the the downside of 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 equity returns and that higher returns 
that investor will receive from investing in equity markets is this volatility profile. Now, I think there's ways and there's ways that we clearly adopt this in our strategies to get around this. We look at businesses that have very good participation when markets are, are, are rising, but offer very good resilience when markets are tougher and in more volatile times. So these are very strong franchise business, best in class businesses that are able to weather these sort of tough periods for, for markets. And ultimately, investing in these sort of stocks, you, you get a very good longer term compounded return, but also with a lower volatility profile. So I think there's certainly ways of combating the equity volatility problem that is clearly apparent within the asset class. And a lot of the work I do and my team do is, is looking for these sort of businesses where we feel confident in terms of the, the balance sheet strength, confident in terms of the low volatility nature of earnings, cash generative, paying dividends, buying back stock, um, high return businesses, strong barriers to entry, all these areas, they're not immune when markets become tough and times become volatile, but they do manage to produce a lot lower volatility outcomes and actually are, can be quite resilient in, in these sort of market conditions. So I, I think there's ways to navigate volatile equity markets where you can have a very good risk-adjusted return from taking lower volatility, but still getting equity-like returns. Thanks, Roger. I, th I think, you know, that's perhaps a, a good example of, of how active management can play an important role in equity allocation, as well as just in, in an investment portfolio for any captive. But um, thank you for your time, Roger. Really appreciate you, uh, you coming on and uh, explaining a little bit about where we are, even if we cannot bring an awful lot of good news. Uh, I think it's important to stay on top of the details where we can. So thank you. And uh, back to you, Richard. Thank you, Chris and Roger. Always really useful to get London and Capital perspective. And I know listeners really do appreciate them always closing with making it all relevant to captive insurance companies. Now, for our final interview of GCP 67, I am delighted to have recently sat down with Shaten Halai, Head of Structured Risk Solutions in the UK at AXA XL. As we have discussed on the pod previously with both Marsh and Brown and & Brown, there is an increasing trend of companies using their captive to at least part fund their cyber coverage and there are numerous ways to do this. So I thought it would be good to get the commercial insurer perspective on this and Jaten had recently written an article suggesting a structured reinsurance program could be a good solution. Jaten begins by providing listeners with some of his own background before we get into the weeds of captive cyber and structured reinsurance. I've been in my current role at AXA Excel in the Structured Risk Solutions team, which is AXA Excel's global alternative risk transfer team, since 2019. And one of the solutions we provide is structured reinsurance for captives and corporates uh, for various lines of business, as well as other non-traditional insurance solutions. Before that, I ran the actuarial pricing team at Fidelis, looking at their specialty and bespoke risks. And um, prior to that, I've had a variety of different roles across different organizations, which has conveniently given me a broad experience of a range of different lines of business. Business. As a team, of course, we have decades of experience between us working with captives. 
Fantastic. So one of the reasons corporates have traditionally been cautious about putting cyber into their captive is, is because of the volatility and, and potential high severity. But we know, of course, the cyber market's going through a pretty tough time uh, for the last couple of years, and it's been a challenging time to get good insurance uh, coverage for, for the large corporates. You seem to think that a, a structured reinsurance program will work for this and, and can, can address this challenge. Why is that? Yeah, so as you say, given the current state of the cyber market, many of our clients are considering putting cyber into captives or they're being forced to. But as you say, it is a potential source of volatility. So a structured solution can be really helpful to to mitigate this additional volatility. The way these work is they are a three to five year contract that help captives manage the volatility over that multi-year time horizon. The premium is bifurcated into what we call an experience balance, which builds up over time and margin. The experience balance always goes back to the client, either in claims payments or in a commutation at the end of the term. So these solutions provide certainty around the maximum amount a captive could pay in any one year. And this doesn't fluctuate each year like it might with an annual contract. So just to give you a few example scenarios, if the claims experience turns out to have gone well, the experience balance, which is built up over a period of time, can then be commuted back to the client at the end of the term. And the client would only have paid us a margin in each year. So it would be significantly cheaper over the long term than what they would have paid for a traditional risk transfer over those years. In another scenario, where there are expected losses, these would have been modeled in advance, the losses would be paid from the experience balance, and at the end of the term, the client could commute the policy and would receive the experience balance back, less what's been paid in claims. So if you look at the overall claims paid and the margin, it would be expected that the client would still have paid significantly less than if they'd bought annual policies from the traditional market. In a third scenario, if there are more than expected claims and a major part of the experience balance is used in claims, the client would still receive the remaining experience balance back if they commuted at the end of the term. That should still be good value compared to the traditional market because the traditional market may react with a lot of price volatility if these large loss claims patterns arise. So if there are claims, a structured solution responds and pays those claims up to an annual aggregate limit, but there is certainty of coverage in the following years. As I'm sure your listeners know, with a traditional annual contract, if there are claims in any one year, the same coverage might not be available the following year and certainly not at the same price, whereas this policy is locked in for a multi-year time period. If the structured solution has been used to increase the captive's retentions, then those losses have been kept away from the traditional market. If there are multiple years of multiple claims, there is meaningful risk transfer over and above the experience balance. Given this risk transfer in the tail, clients can reduce or redeploy capital if they have one of these solutions. So a structured program is really a partnership with a captive that can help the captive manage its retained risk volatility over a multi-year time period, help the captive release or redeploy capital, and provide certainty over a number of years. Another point to consider is that there's an option to do this on what we call a funds withheld basis, where the client would only need to pay the insurer the risk margin, and the client, whether it's on a corporate basis if it's insurance or, or a reserve if it's a captive, can build up the experience balance over time. The insurer would pay losses according to the agreed experience schedule, which in reality would mean that if the experience balance hadn't built up to a certain point, when the claim arises, the insurer would pay losses and recover later from future experience payments. Another variation on this theme is where the experience balance is payable post-loss, and only the margin would be paid in the first year. In the first year of a five-year contract, if the client doesn't put a claim to the program, the client then has the option to cancel the policy and rewrite, but the insurer would be locked in. So if there's a claim in the first year, the client would be locked into the post-loss experience balance payments. So it's certain, I can certainly see why uh, the structured solution can be a fix in this kind of volatile market and that volatile line of insurance. So let's expand a bit further on that then. Why do you think cyber is cyber a line that is particularly well suited to 
a structured solution and if so why so cyber is a really interesting risk at the moment because as people know there is both an increasing demand and some restrictions in supply in the traditional market and art solutions are particularly good at addressing situations like this any retained risk is suitable for a structured solution but given the limited capacity available for cyber risk a structured solution can help a captive increase its level of retention in a safe manner which should have the added benefit of improving the cost of the traditional layers sitting above Many are being forced to increase their retentions, as you know, which of course brings additional risk volatility to the balance sheet. And a structured solution can help manage this volatility over a multi-year time period. It can also be used to fill gaps in cover throughout the tower that many of our clients are seeing at renewal. And then thirdly, if if the cyber market continues to harden, this covers locked in for a multi-year period, which could be up to five years. So that gives certainty over those over those years, regardless of how the market fluctuates. Obviously, this kind of uh, approach and program structure is, as you said, it's definitely a partnership with the commercial uh, reinsurance partner. Um, one of the f- areas we often talk about captives being used a lot is to broaden insurance coverage when they're struggling to get the, the terms and the coverage that they want. Can the structured approach, can this approach help the insured broaden the coverage? Yeah, good question. So to an extent, the coverage could be structured to include risks that wouldn't normally be covered on a traditional basis. In practice, however, we've found that these types of policies tend to cover traditional risks which have been assumed by a captive and then reinsured under a structured solution. Okay, okay, exactly. So obviously with the commercial market, obviously still involvement in it, you're still going to have to have that negotiation about what's, what's going to be covered. Exactly, yeah. So just lastly, Jaten, it was great to have you onto the podcast for the first time. The hard market, as we said, talked about so much the last couple of years, obviously captors are entering more and more conversations, entering more and more areas. Have you noticed kind of captors coming onto your desk and onto your radar uh, more than previously? Yeah, our team at Axtra Excel has written a number of structured reinsurance policies over, over many years, but there's been a real step change recently in the number of inquiries we're seeing, not just for cyber, but in, in all lines of business. Well, thank you to Shaten Halai of AXA XL, as well as Chris Diel and Roger Jones at London and & Capital, and of course, our captive owner, Teresa Severson of Kite Realty Group, for another varied episode of the Global Captive Podcast. I do hope you found the past 30 minutes or so valuable, and we'll get to see you again soon. So in the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.